Hey there, podcast listeners. Today's show is a little bit of an audio train wreck due to various problems, dropped calls, bad reception issues. Uh, I apologize for that. We will uh, try to do better next time. It was an interesting discussion, so I figured put it out anyway. All right, so here we go. Welcome to the Vegas Gang podcast for August 6, 2009. Uh, I'm very happy to be here with all of you. Lots of ground to cover since our last show, without a doubt. Uh, so let me start by going around the table to introduce my good buddies. Dr. Dave Schwartz from UNLV's Center for Gaming Research. Good afternoon, Dave. Hey there. Mr. Jeff Simpson from the Las Vegas Sun and In Business Las Vegas. Welcome, Jeff. Greetings from across the virtual table. <laughs> Chuck S. Monster from VegasTripping.com. What's happening, Chuck? I am fabulous, and I'm glad to be here with the rest of you guys. Yes, me too. My name's Hunter Hilligus, um, and I am glad to be here as well. Very excited. Uh, I'm going to start with a little announcement. Um, just a reminder for listeners, the Vegas podcast, The Palooza 2, is going to be October 17th, and we hope that you will come. It will be at the Palms um, in the afternoon-ish. I can't remember exactly the time off the top of my head. But um, a couple hours in the afternoon, you get a chance to uh, hear us and, um, and buy Pundy by Midnight and The Strip and just have a good time. So we hope you'll come and meet some of your fellow listeners, meet some people that do some other great Las Vegas podcasts that even if they're not part of the lineup, we're hoping they'll show up and hang out and uh, it'll just be a, a fun time. So I'm um, looking forward to that and we'll keep uh, you posted as to the details as they as things progress. So, um, first off, off the very top, Dave, I'm actually going to start with you. You just posted something to your blog about a new project that you're working on. Sounds pretty interesting. Why don't you tell us what it is? Yeah. Um, this is the 2009 Recession Impact Survey that we're doing over here at UNLV. Basically, the short form is that back in 1980, this accounting firm did a recession impact study that asked different executives at Las Vegas casinos about what was happening with the economic decline and whether the decline in their travel was, was responsible or gasoline prices or what was going on and what they were going to do about it. And I decided that, hey, it would be a good idea to do something like that now because we've got a pretty severe recession here. So I, with the help of a couple people I know in the industry and at UNLV, I got together a list, a very brief list of 10 questions that I'm trying to get to executives at every casino in Las Vegas. So that is pretty much it in a nutshell. And you're going to be sharing this, the results with the public? Sharing the results with the world. I'm going to have the, the survey itself will be available online. I'm also going to put it in the archives here. And then I'm also probably going to write some kind of uh, paper with a little bit of interpretation and analysis of the survey. You know, But the survey will be available in its raw form as well, so anybody can use it. But the result, the um, submissions are anonymous, correct? Totally anonymous. Um, it's executives can take it online. Pretty much, uh, if they're not contacted by somebody at their property, they can email me. And once I get their bona fides in order and you know get it confirmed that yes, they do work at this at a, at a property and they are who they say they are, then I'll give them the password and they can take it. And it's totally anonymous and takes about ten or fifteen minutes, so it's not too difficult. And I think it will really help 
uh, executives in Vegas and maybe elsewhere decide how they should go forward. You know, I think there's a tendency right now for a lot of people in the industry to want to just try to ride out the storm. And I don't think that's going to be the best thing because we've got competition from other jurisdictions. The market is changing. Customers are changing. And I think, you know, just riding out the storm isn't going to cut it. They're going to have to make some changes, and this will help them decide what to do. Well, it sounds like a cool project. I definitely um, want to, you know, encourage it and hope you get a lot of great participation. Any uh, anybody that's out there that's listening, if you're interested, if you are, if you happen to be one of these these uh, executives, director level or above, definitely go over to dieiscast.com and get the uh, details. And note Dave links over to the the Center for Gaming Research site there as well. So. Definitely sounds um, very interesting, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the results when it's all compiled. Yeah, yeah, me too. And this is really the kind of thing that's going to be a lot about the industry and what kind of buy-in I can get. And if we can get a lot of buy-in, I think that's going to be a really encouraging sign that, hey, people do care about this. You know, people want some solutions. They want things, you know, they want to move forward here. They're not just acting, you know, reactively and defensively, and they really want to kind of try to build something coming out of this. Yeah, well, it sounds very cool, and definitely uh, can't wait to see how it turns out. So, uh, moving on to the next thing, um, uh, speaking of uh, Las Vegas casino companies, um, Harris Entertainment um, floated a proposal, and some of these some of these items are a couple weeks old now, but we're sort of gathering from multiple sources and just plowing through the stuff, interesting stuff we haven't talked about. They, uh, you know, Harrah's over the years um, sort of assembled their casino empire, buying up all these different properties and consolidating um, consolidating that side of the strip and also buying some property behind these properties. And I think, you know, that it was uh, fairly common knowledge that they um, had at least explored the idea of creating something. You know, I, I use city center as a point of comparison just because it's um, the easiest thing, but who knows what exactly what it would have looked like. But some kind of massive redevelopment of a large percentage of that area. Um, that, you know, considering the way that the economy has gone and the considerable debt burden that the company is facing since their privatization, um, those plans have largely been put on hold. A few weeks ago, though, we did see them float a design idea, which I refer to as the Harris Street O Shops. Um, sort of this rank ghetto uh, alleyway between Flamingo and O'Shea's, um, which, you know, most people walk by. And I, I honestly can probably see I've seen someone walking on it like once or twice in my life. Um, usually it's just pretty empty. You see some cars driving on it, get into that garage every once in a while. But it's, it's not a focal point by any stretch of the imagination. They um, have a plan to turn that into a sort of carnival midway type vibe with um, this giant Ferris wheel of doom at the end that is, everyone seems to want to do a Ferris wheel. I don't know why exactly this has become this popular idea to float, but everyone and their mother has floated like, some kind of Ferris wheel idea over the last six years, uh, none of which has actually been built. Um, so what do you guys think? Is this a good idea for Harris? Is this, uh, well, if it happens, is it a good idea? Does anyone actually think this is going to happen anytime in the, in the near future? I do. I think it's going to happen. It's not. It's okay. not that. Ex, it's not that expensive. Um, you know, the Ferris wheel. Yeah, there have been a, a million of those ventures floated uh, for the corner next to um, what was then the Aladdin for behind the Rio, um, next to on the uh, 
on what eventually became the crown site between Sahara and Fontainebleau, um, and and maybe others that I for, I'm forgetting, but uh, you know it has it, it it's certainly not a less expensive um, kind of icon that you can build if you build a really huge one. It would be visible from all over the place. Um, for Harris, it's sort of a nice placeholder until they uh, can can afford or are forced to um, eventually get rid of their cash flow producing yet. Um, sort of stale properties um, on the east side of the strip, um, nor, you know, north of uh, north of Paris. Um, you know, it's sort of a, a big row of them. They have Bally's, they have Barbary Coast. I'm sorry, Bills, um, Flamingo, um, O'Shea's, Imperial Palace, and Harrah's. Um, not exactly a murderer's row of uh, current and vogue uh, properties. So this is, you know, it's a way, obviously, you know, now they're acting like this was their plan all along. Obviously, that's bogus. Uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, this is a this is a way to justify some of their property purchases uh, between the Strip and Koval, um, and they will eventually do something else. But it's certainly a satisfactory placeholder holder for, you know, a, a decade or two, probably, and you know, now the question is whether they can create, you know, the kind of uh, restaurants and things along with the uh, Ferris wheel that will actually attract people. But, you know, there is some there is some perception, and I think it's justified that uh, too much of um, Las Vegas investment has gone towards um, properties, restaurants, and activities that appeal to those who come to town with, you know, significant four-figure budgets. Um, when you look at what the LV, at the LVCVA stats, the uh, convention authority stats, most people don't bring that much money to town, even in the even in the eras where even a couple of years ago when room rates were getting um, up into the you know two three hundred bucks a night at the better properties. There's a lot of folks who come to town and spend you know who want to spend a hundred dollars or less a day for a hotel and significantly less than that on their food and beverage and entertainment. And these kind of things will give them something to do. Um, they fit right in with that with that uh, collection of hotels that they have. Um, if it's done right, I think it could it could be a you know a fantastic placeholder. Is it something that's going to you know excite visitors from around the world? No, but you know will it? give people something to do, probably I would say superior to the kind of thing you get on Fremont Street, which is, you know, pretty schlocky, but still gets, you know, decent crowds. Um, yeah, I think so. Well, here's my concern. Um, my concern is that uh, we already have seen what Harris will do with something like this in a smaller scale. And I, I would point to Carnival Court right next door, which is I don't know not not of the same scale obviously and not and and maybe they'll I hope they'll one up it but I, if it's Carnival Court two with some restaurants that'll be a pretty big disappointment. Now on the flip side, the uh, the Margaritaville restaurant at Flamingo right there on that corner is always crowded when I walk by there. So if they can somehow uh, replicate that experience and draw people back into that area, maybe it will work. You know, something that I want yeah, to just throw throw an idea out in, into the uh, into the mix here that 
that it doesn't seem like anybody's really put together on a strip property is an outdoor music venue. If they put, you know, a place out there where you could have, you know, a concert that's not necessarily on the beach, you know, you don't have to go to the Mandalay Bay. I guess they do things at the pool and at the other places, but really like an outdoor music venue and then maybe the, the, uh, uh, the Ferris wheel and all this other stuff. Then you get that whole county fair kind of vibe, which I guess could be a little bit interesting. But to me, you know, a draw would be something like an event, something that's really going to happen instead of, oh, let's walk down this promenade and look at the thing, maybe get on it and turn around and get back. You know, it just, it, it doesn't, it's not a very compelling, you know, as a tourist, I, I, it, it doesn't excite me or interest me at all. You know, if, well, if there was a real big payoff at the end... Th- I know, think we'll- there will be, though. That's what they hope to do with that arena that would go sort of at the end of it, at the south end, behind Bally's in Paris. You know, obviously that's delayed waiting for money, but when you look at most modern arenas and stadiums, they have sort of a food and beverage neighborhood, you know, where people build restaurants and bars and nightclubs and things to sort of siphon off the gathering and dispersing crowds. And uh, that's what they're hoping to get there, I think. I think that, you know, they're going to build this and then hopefully eventually build the arena. Well, we'll, we'll see. I mean, uh, you know, a, a, any if they can transform that kind of rank alleyway into an attraction, that's great. You know, I hope that works. Yeah. And I definitely agree with you, Jeff, that, um, you know, expanding offerings for a more, not necessarily a super budget class, consumer, but just a mid-level consumer, I think that's also fantastic. And Las Vegas, for a long time, ignored that market um, just because, well, for a lot of reasons. But, you know, I think it's great to expand that stuff. If it works, fantastic. I don't think you're going to find me on the Ferris wheel all that often. But, um, you know, it's it's at least creative. Someone stood at the, at, the, at the end of that street and said, huh, what can we do? I at least give them points for um, thinking a little bit outside the box, too convert something that was not revenue producing into something that potentially will be. I don't um, think we I don't think you should think of it as just that alleyway or whatever that little passageway. You know, there's a lot of stuff on the north end of the Flamingo property. That's where they have their um their bus their bus tours come in there. Right. Um they have like there's a lot of stuff that could go away at the north end of Flamingo um, right. once you get past Margaritaville and certainly O'Shea's. I mean, that's like a a wrecking ball waiting to happen. So um, you could widen that access to the strip, sort of make it more visible. And you know, once the people get back there, I mean, you know, the great the great thing from Harris' perspective is this stuff would cost practically nothing compared to the cost of big resorts. I mean, we're talking about you know almost certainly nine figures you know in the in the lower hundreds of millions to mid hundreds of millions and and it's you know they get they they get a bang it increases the value of their neighboring properties it lets them keep pushing cash through through the cash cash flow through those places and you know and and realizes some value for the you know massive amount of money they spent to buy that turf um when they thought they were going to do something else well we'll see what happens but speaking of speaking of existing operators uh reinvesting in their properties and trying to create some excitement without uh without a full whole hog expansion Monte Carlo is going to open this week Hotel 32 which is their redesigned, refurbished, top floor set of 
suites and ultra luxury rooms that were taken out by that fire in what was that January of 2008, 2007. I don't know, whenever that was. Um, and so they're finally opening up these rooms again. They've been closed this whole time. Uh, now, what's interesting is how they're marketing this. And, Chuck, actually, I want to go to you because you wrote a, a piece about this, um, about the room rates for Hotel 32. Uh, now, you know, given that they are still inside the shell of the Monte Carlo, they're still restricted by small windows and, you know, relatively um, – well, it's not, not the same kind of luxurious construction you would find at a resort that was going to be built today. What did you find when it came to the room rates, and, and would you will you recap sort of what you wrote? Yeah, yeah. The uh, the room rates for the first week or so, uh, first month, week, month of, uh, of August, September, it opens August 10th. So from the rest of August through September, room rates pretty much like 250 during the week. And then ranging up to like a thousand bucks a night on the weekend. Uh, and compared to opening week, compared to uh, Encore, uh, the Encore panoramic rooms are like 229 or so for those days, except like the Fridays a little more. Bellagio is like 189, 190, and less. Uh, the Encore parlor suites, which are quite a bit bigger, but I imagine uh, somewhat maybe closer to what it is. It's hard to tell exactly what they're doing with, with, uh, with the Hotel 32 because they haven't released any real photos of the room. It's all, you know, computer rendering, so we can't fully tell what's in there. But uh, while Encore is like 600 bucks, and the Palazzo uh, Luxury Concierge Suites are, I think they're like 260 or so like that week. Uh, you know, so in terms of price, it's more than Bellagio. It's more than Encore top floor standard panoramic rooms. It's about the same price range as the upper mid-tier of the Palazzo suites, and it's less than the Encore parlor suites. You know, and, and to me, uh, it, it seems like it's definitely quite overpriced. I don't, I, you know, we won't be able to tell until we can get in there and really look at it, but it seems like the rates are just, a, they're asking a little too much or what I think people are going to be willing to pay, because you're still staying at Monte Carlo, which is a, a kind of yeah. sleepy at night sort of property, but but it's not exciting or top of the line by any stretch of the imagination. I, I think those rates are insane. I, I can't yeah. imagine that they'll sustain those. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense in the competitive structure of what else is available. Um, I just, you know... I mean, maybe they don't expect to sell any of those suites at the rack rates, and they're all just for their premium players who, they, you know, aren't aren't paying those anyway. Um, you know, maybe and maybe that's the case, and those numbers really don't mean anything. But they just sounded completely, completely crazy. You know, something a, a reader had posted a comment on on the, one of the stories on on Vegas tripping. It, it might have been this one, or it was a uh, the, about the Hard Rock. With their new tower that just opened, is, is that right. a lot of times like the the rates that they advertise in advance of the opening are based on what the financing, like the promises of the financing that they get. It's part of like the agreement that they advertise at a certain rate, and then after that, it it, uh, it they can kind of bottom out like sort of after they open once they get past this. Otherwise, like, it makes like the, it devalues the property before it opens. 
for some strange financial reason. I don't know the specifics or what or any details at all about it. I haven't even researched it, but it seemed like an interesting sort of thing. No, I haven't heard that, but that is that kind of an interesting angle. Does any anyone else know if that's true? I've never I've never heard of anything like that. I mean, I, I certainly have it. I mean, when you look at Aria pricing, I mean, you can look right now at what they're selling Aria and Vidara for, and um, in, in a lot of cases, it's less than Bellagio. So, you know, I know they had to borrow quite a lot of money to build that day, to build a city center, and yeah. um, you know, the, of course, their financing may be different, than, you know, for that than Monte Carlo. My bet is that they're just, you know, when you when you set prices that high in advance you're trying to establish a perception. And, uh, you know, my bet is it's something like that. Um, I don't know, how, I don't even know, and maybe you know, Chuck, how many units they have there. Um, I don't know, does each, does every suite, ha, you know, have, I know they always have butler service, but, you know, maybe there's like a dedicated butler in the suite or, you know, who, you know I just don't know. My understanding is it ranges, that there basically are full, full, full-blown kind of butler status type suites, but they're also basically the equivalent of what they call studios, which are basically standard rooms and that are still very, they're still ex very expensive. Now, obviously the rates aren't the same for all those different types of rooms, but it, it, the prices really surprised me when I saw yeah. what they were, they were asking. So, I mean, well, I don't know, I'm, if there, the, the question also is, is if there are all these different types of rooms, when I see, when I look at that and I see 250 a night or 350 a night, I might book that thinking I'm getting, you know, suite A, which comes with a butler and 47 television screens and a, yeah. and a pool table and a bidet and all the, these other things. But I, I get there and it's a, you know, it's a 650-square-foot room. You know, that, you know, how, they're not making these kinds of delineations in the room offerings on the website. Right. No, so, so how can how it it uh, it's hard. I think like many of these hotels, right? They don't necessarily put their top top rooms on the website. Now it says here in the press release, on the on Hotel Thirty Two has a collection of five room types ranging from studios to two bedroom penthouses. There definitely is a quite a big range between the smallest studio, quote unquote, to um, the top of the line. So, I mean, yes, I think someone may end up being disappointed when they show up at Hotel 32 and they get put into Monte Carlo, 30, Monte Carlo 12 or whatever. <laughs> it right. just, uh, we'll see, we'll see how it goes. I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing a room myself just to get an idea of what they look like. And, and it is nice to come with a sort of have a VIP lounge of sorts on the top. So it's, you know, sort of some exclusive amenities, but, um, I don't know. I uh, I can't imagine shelling out if I was a paying customer. I can't imagine shelling out that kind of money when there's a lot of competition with some really incredible rooms at those kind of rates in town. Yeah, I think that the company is trying to reposition Monte Carlo because of its proximity to city center. You know, it's sort of along with Bellagio, it bookends city center and. I've been sort of disappointed in what they've done um, at that property. I mean, I'm, sh you know, the some of the things that they um, have going there, um, they're, you know, they're going to be linking by, you know, their tram from Mon from Monte Carlo through City Center to Bellagio. So they're that whole uh, line of um, retail and the brew pub have been closed. They signed uh, that uh, Man and Woman Act. Uh, 
I can't remember their name. Uh, there's a Z in it, but they used to play at the Palms and at Red Rock. Uh, uh, Zoe Bowie. Zoe Bowie is it, yes. And uh, they are going to be playing there um, eventually, uh, starting at the Brew Pub and then moving to their um, main stage. And, you know, to me, it's an abomination what they did with that Diablos on the front and the strip. Oh. I mean, you, you take a property <laughs> that looks, it looks like A, and then they say, oh, you know what, let's stick something that looks like Z on the front of it. I mean, it just is, it just does not fit. I mean, Monte Carlo, for what it was, it was a beautiful, attractively priced, sort of quiet property, um, you know, much, you know, and, and I would recommend it to certain kinds of folks I knew who were visiting, um, who might appreciate that sort of the Monte Carlo vibe, which was one thing. Now it's trying to be all things to all people, and that's usually a losing proposition. Um, you know, only the MGM Grand can probably get away with that. But, um, you know, I just don't understand some of their strategy there. But, you know, they're in the business, so let's see if it works. Yeah, well, it'll be, you know, I would expect Monte Carlo's numbers to get a pretty significant boost when City Center opens just by virtue of people walking through the place or tramming through the place or whatever. But, um, you know, with, with especially, but on the flip side, with City Center opening, it's hard for me to get excited about Hotel 32. If I, if I was going to shell out the big bucks, I would just plan a trip for Aria. But, uh, so, you know, moving on from, uh, from Monte Carlo, but staying in the realm of um, <clears throat> sort of getting a lot for a little bit of money or flip vice versa, we're going to transit over to Atlantic City and talk about Donald Trump. And, um, and Dave, maybe I can get you to chime in on this. Now, Donald Trump, up until this proposal, has sort of been divorced from the company that bears his name in Atlantic City. Is that correct? Yes, for a couple of months he has. So what what is he proposing, and what are the figures that are attached to it? Pretty much what he's going to do is reacquire, acquire, reacquire the company for about $100 million, which means right. he would what, get the company. What assets does that include? I mean, what Pretty much, unless I'm wrong, that includes the three Atlantic City casinos, and I don't think they have anything else left. Right. So it's pretty much the Trump Taj Mahal, the marina, and the plaza. What it, what just, you know, the amazing thing to me about this story is just the fact, the number, $100 million for three casinos in Atlantic City that at least at one point were, um, you know, had a, had a, a not insignificant amount of market share. I mean, obviously, Borgata had taken the top spot in Atlantic City, and there's competition down the road from Revel and others. But, um, you know, the Taj Mahal for a long time was at least uh, – least had a significant share and there's two other properties there i mean how can his competitors allow it seems like almost highway robbery you you would almost think that someone someone else in that in that market would want to come in and, and at least make a counter bid unless no one has the resources to even bid at the bargain basement levels we're talking about yeah you know i've got to think that somebody's got a hundred million dollars somewhere you know certainly dennis gomes had a group you know everybody who was in line to buy the tropicana who didn't buy the tropicana you know, I think a lot of people would have $100 million. My God, right. Penn National has how much? So, $700 million? 
tell Harris not to build their Ferris wheel on again. <laughs> they yeah. can get more casinos. <laughs> but you know, Penn National has has close to a billion, I think. Maybe somebody can correct me in their war chest and right. was trying to get this site off of Route 30 and build something out there. And here, basically, for probably the cost of what it would for what it would cost to get that land ready to build they could have three casinos. You know, admittedly, some of them are a little bit battered, but, you know, these are three casinos, three working casinos with active customer lists, you know, that I think could have a real shot. So it would be a good deal if somebody could get it. The question is, how much debt would he assume? Because, you know, that $100 million actually means probably close to a billion dollars, right? There's like $900 million worth of debt. I don't know the exact number, but uh, well, they're, they're swimming. I think they will. I think they negotiated something. I, I don't know if I, I read this quickly. I, I, the number that stuck out to me was like $430 million negotiated down. So it was – so whatever debt they hold, which is, you know, someone's taking – the bondholders or whatever are going to take a pretty significant bath. And the, the debt that the new entity would would still carry would be like 430 million or something like that. I think that's right, if I recall correctly. So I mean, you know, the I guess the the bondholders would rather take that situation than whatever situation they're in now. I guess they don't have a very optimistic um, feeling about how things are going. It just it just seems like such a small amount of money to acquire three casinos in a major market. Um, I, you know, should we expect another offer from somebody else, or is, is this deal just going to sail through? Well, I would, you know, I would guess again that there would have to be somebody who'd want to get into the, who would want to get into that market, who has more than a hundred million dollars to spend. So, I would guess maybe there would be. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We should, uh, we should start the Vegas Can Casino and see, uh, see how that goes. Yeah, I, I, the, the 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 number you can have truck truck at the door greeting greeting customers and yeah you know the thing that is is often you know and I've really never understood it but you know um, Donald Trump and because of his you know real estate success in New York and I guess a little bit in Florida he gets he really gets a pass on his um, complete casino industry. Uh, failure um you know he is you know maybe back in the 80s you know he built some places he managed to borrow some money to do that but he really has not been able to keep up with um you know the the good operators in the in the industry um i know that you know the top las vegas operators do not have a lot of respect for donald trump as a casino operator as a as a builder as a real estate developer certainly they do um and it's just it's just strange. I mean, he was the CEO of his casino company for a long time, but forced out a couple of years ago. They forced him out as chairman, or actually he quit right before that would happen um, at the start of this year, I think. And and now he gets to come back and get the casinos that bear his name. But you know, he has really done um, you know very poorly in that market. And it's a market for the, for a long time. You know, there was. There was all kinds of opportunity. Um, it's it's certainly challenged now with all the surrounding states getting in, into at least the slot business, um, and you know they're just outside of Borgata and 
a few buildings here and there, the the new tower at Harris and stuff. There's there's been some investment, but not much. Um, you know what? How much Donald Trump can do? It seems like a great deal for Trump. It's a good deal, you know, to buy these properties at such an amazing discount. But you know, I don't think anybody should be under the illusion that Donald Trump is all of a sudden going to change his spots and become like some really creative casino guy who's going to figure a way to turn Atlantic City around. Uh, you know, he just <laughs> Not that kind of a guy. I yeah. think he saw a killer opportunity and decided to pounce. I mean, you know, if he can get him at this price, seems like that's right. You know, assuming the the economy is at some point improves, he could even flip them and sell them and make potentially a huge profit on the line. Yeah, he didn't he didn't quite make an icon style deal, which um, you know another guy who has been in and out and back again in Atlantic City. Um, his deal really was a, an incredibly good deal because he has access to capital as well. Um, sort of surprising that, that Donald was able to get access, but Icon, that's no surprise. And his whole uh, career in this industry has been buying exceptionally low, distressed properties um, and uh, you know selling them uh, when the time is right. And he's done that and uh, will probably be doing it again. Well, I'll be curious, personally curious to see if um, another bidder emerges or uh, if if the Donald ends up with uh, his little empire. I guess he's going to have his daughter uh, help run the place this time around. So I'm sure Mark Giuliano is excited to have Ivanka in the house. Um, Moving back to the Silver State, um, I want to talk a little bit about regulation because in the last couple of weeks there's been at least two – events that happened that um, caught my interest. The first has been really widely publicized. The second, a little bit less so, but still should be on everybody's radar. Um, the first is the Privé Planet Hollywood situation. So um, for those that aren't aware, Privé is slash was a nightclub inside of Planet Hollywood, um, I believe operated by some gentlemen out of uh, Miami. Um, and they were uh, cited and, and the hotel was find um, based on some activities that took place, uh, some events that took place in this allegedly, I don't know if it's, I don't know if you have to say allegedly or not, but um, happened in the nightclub. So basically, I think they were accused of dropping off extremely drunk patrons inside the casino. Uh, there were there some accusations about drug use and uh, semi-public nudity and all these kinds of things that, um, you know, fly in the face of the uh, licensed operators, um and um, sort of it reflects badly on the state, which is one of those things that these licensees are required to do is reflect uh, reflect well on the state and run their business in a way that, that does that. So we saw a rather large half-million-dollar fine with a potential for another $250,000 fine if they don't – if there are further um, substantiated complaints in the next year, I believe. Um, and since then, the club, I think, has lost its liquor license and is appealing, but things are looking a little bit bad for them. Um, and Hello? Okay. Here's where we are. Um <clears throat> Uh, in the past few weeks, we saw two incidents involving regulation in, in Nevada that were notable. Um, the first related to the Privé nightclub at Planet Hollywood. 
they were fined. The casino, hotel casino, was fined a half million dollars for incidents that allegedly took place in the club, including uh, the security guards dropping off extremely drunk patrons in the casino. Um, there was some allegations of drug use, and also I think some some complaints about nudity. Basically, stuff that reflects poorly on the state. Which one of the um, you know one of the stipulations for being licensed in Nevada, you have to um, that's what you got to got to uh, make a good impression on behalf of uh, of the state. So we saw that fine take place, and since then the club um, had its liquor license pulled, and they're appealing that, but uh, it's not really looking too good for them at the moment. Um, and then, sort of dovetail with that, we saw. Uh, Harris voluntarily, I believe, uh, withdrew their Sapphire Pool Party situation at the Rio, which was um, basically a European-style pool where they actually hired um, local strippers to hang out there to kind of solve the problem that all these pools have, have which is there are actually no women there. There's always a bunch of guys looking, leer, leering at people over their books and whatnot. Um, so they, they figured they'd solve that problem by... Uh, hiring some strippers and having them hang out there, which apparently worked a little too well. Um, and there were some that the pool area failed what's called an integrity check. And we don't know exactly what they checked for, but the implication is that there may have been some prostitution going on in that area, um, or at least there was just of that. And so basically, Harris voluntarily shut that down. Um, so what I'm hearing is this. We, it sort of seems like um, that the uh, regu regulators, and I'll just say sort of regulation in general, is maybe stepping up a couple of notches. Were people surprised by what happened with Prive? I mean, it, it, nightclubs, at least from my perception, have sort of run a little wild for people. It seems like uh, Prive sort of being made an example of. Uh, I can't know what the feeling was in the industry when the pre-Hollywood kind of situation um, emerged. Anyone know? Well, I, a couple of years ago, I wrote a column about um, questioning MGM Mirage's uh, allowing the light group, which uh, it was still light then and wasn't the bank. And they the, uh, the light um, nightclub had a... Uh, a uh, calendar release party for the girls of Crazy Horse 2. And the Crazy Horse 2, of course, was owned by um, Rick Rizzolo, who was under scrutiny and um, was soon to be indicted. Uh, but, you know, the uh, Gaming Control Board knew a lot about him. They had grilled Tim Poster, of, uh, who was up for licensing at the Golden Nugget, about his relationship with the guy. Yet MGM Mirage didn't mind when Light Group, you know, sort of um, not only had this calendar release party, but that it means they have all these strippers hanging out in their bar. Um, and the same thing when the the Rio did this deal with Sapphire Pool. Now, that's not the first time that's happened. Plenty of those pools make sort of uh, piecemeal deals instead of getting the entire, you know, uh, strip club and their whole staff. Because, but Mandalay Bay had, had done that. Um, certainly Hard Rock with the girls from across the street at Club Paradise. Um, 
you know, that's not the first time it's happened, but anyone in the resort business, um, they're not stupid. They know that if you're bringing strippers in, um, some of them are going to be, uh, you know, hooking on the side. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a great wink in the casino business about it. I mean, you don't have to be a uh, Inspector um, Clouseau or Sherlock Holmes to uh, find strippers at the Baccarat Bar at Bellagio or at Cleopatra's Barge in Caesar's Palace or at the bar next to the casino in the Rio or a handful of others, the big center bar at Mandalay Bay. I mean, you can go on and on. They're all over the place, and there's plenty of hookers in all these resorts all the time. Um, But when you have strip clubs coming in, it's even more it's even more um, likely, and um, the casino companies should probably have been a little tougher. I think the Gaming Control Board finally said enough is enough. Um, with Harris, I think they proactively asked Metro to do it probably as a way to, you know, sort of get out of that deal. And, um, you know, the writing was on the wall after the Privé bust. And I think you're going to see a lot more of these these kind of things. The control board has indicated it's discussed with uh, some of the things that are going on. And so, I mean, certainly no one should think that they're going to eradicate prostitution out of the, out of the hotels. But it just won't be as blatant in some ways as it was before, at least in terms of a nightclub and some of the other shenanigans that go on in there. What, you know, what, you know, I'm also wondering this, and then I, it's sort of hard for me to articulate exactly what I mean, but I, I know from talking to some, at least some people, and, and maybe this is a minority opinion, but part of, at least for some people, especially in an age group that I'm now um, departing, but this sort of 20 to 30-year-old age group, part of the allure of is, I'm not sure exactly how to put it on these an idea of really actual lawlessness, but um, the idea that uh, I don't know the idea that the uh, sort of crackdown is occurring seems almost antithetical to the appeal to some degree, at least to a certain uh, sort of life of potential customers. I mean, ultimately, is there any concern that it will drive away any potential customers in that regard? I mean, I, I can't. I'm not going to argue that prostitution is a good thing. Um, that, and that they should look the other way, but it just... It absolutely can, and Hunter, you're right. Um, I think that, you know, a tightly controlled nightclub scene will not, it will, it will lose some of its allure compared to the South Beaches um, and, you know, other places where, you know, I mean, the nightclubs are, you know, only regulated by uh, liquor authorities and, and local cops. Um, you know, gaming regulation is a much tougher um, is much tougher, and uh, you know, so I think I think you're right to, that there is there probably should be some concern by folks um, if they, you know they want the most you know the craziest party atmosphere. Um, the casino probably isn't going to be the place to get it. Um, so I think you know that, that that's a, that's a good point, and uh, you know, but I think that that's probably something gaming regulators are willing to sacrifice. The night the casino owners probably aren't, but the uh, the regulators probably are. I think there's a fear that it's it. There may be a little bit of a slide there, but it's better than the alternative, which would be either some kind of huge lawsuit or some kind of really big, 
negative news story that comes out of the sort of things like the sexual assaults, the physical assaults, and that kind of aspect. I think the prostitution is probably incidental. I think everybody knows that it happens in Vegas, um, even though it's illegal. I think really that's probably incidental to it, although a lot of the things that happen with the prostitution, like trick rolling and STDs and that kind of stuff, certainly doesn't um, give the city a good image. But I think basically they're afraid of something even worse happening. Now, and now back to one of my original questions, is Prevay kind of uh, being made an example of here? I mean, this kind of stuff is probably happening all over. Why did they get singled out? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think definitely you had IRS investigations at several clubs. You know, I think if you went around the strip with the clipboard, you could find tons of violations. I think basically this, coupled with that letter that Randall Sayer sent to all the licensees saying, hey, we want to get together with you guys and have these workshops and go and seminars and go over what you should and shouldn't be doing. I think that's really sort of a carrot and stick approach saying, okay, if you want to get together, we can, you know, talk about how it's going to run. That's fine. If not, you know, you're going to have to expect some enforcement. So I, I think, I think Dave is, Dave is right. I think that it all. You also, you know, I mean, when when this is announced, and the first place they go after is is Planet Hollywood's club and Ultra Lounge. You know, I mean, I think that most people certainly think that whether it's Pure, whether it's the Bank, whether it's Excess uh, or Trist, um, you know, based on uh, Victor's uh, record over it. Um, his uh the club that's named by after him that at the Barbary Coast or Bills. Um certainly a lot of wild stuff takes place and has taken place there. I don't think anyone should think that it doesn't at, at Win and Encore. Um, you know, I mean I think a lot of people are like, Yeah, sure, go after the you know, the easiest one. It's a little tougher to take on MGM and Harris and and Win. Um and, and, and I shouldn't leave out um, Tau and Lavo at um, Venetian and Palazzo. So you know those are those are bigger, more well-established uh, casino operating companies, and uh, it'll be a test of the control board's metal and their intent um, to see whether they go after clubs at those places too. If they don't, I think it's sort of a sign that the control board um, is a lot of bark and less bite if they go after them. Um, then they'll prove that they really mean business. I wonder if there was something that really sort of, uh, you know, there was some straw that broke the camel's back here and why this is happening now or if this is just sort of the product of a long-ranging uh, set, of, set of initiatives that, that are just sort of now taking effect. And I, I can't point to any single event as in, like, XYZ customer was injured, hurt, sued, or something like that to say this is what instigated this. Well, I think in one of the articles I read about how the gaming people showed up to do some check, and apparently they weren't welcomed with open arms by the club staff, which really, I think, is a is a bad sign. I think in 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 gaming regulation, really, a lot of times, it's the cover up and the intransigence is worse than the actual crime. You know, this is what happened in New Jersey with Columbia Sussex, where it's not that they cut staff, it's that they lied to the um, Casino Control Commission about cutting staff. You know, I think a lot of times, you know, there's tons of violations going on and it's not that you had violations that you didn't work with the with gaming enforcement to address it i think i think a lot of time it boils down to that yeah no i i that makes sense to me well it, it's going to be interesting to see if we see more of these down the down the line um and you know as the one in, in 
in some degree, I sort of feel sorry for the opposite of Freeve. I mean, I don't know them, and I don't know if maybe they're the worst of the bunch, but to sort of, you know, go down for the misdeeds of every of an entire industry is unfortunate. And, um, you know, it, I, it, I don't know anything could happen, but it doesn't, from what we're seeing, it doesn't appear that the county is all that eager to give them a second chance, or maybe this is the third or fourth chance. But... Um, it doesn't really seem like they're going to that they're going to be able to survive us. You know, I would I would say that it was the, the likely scenario is that the the operators of those clubs um, aren't allowed to at least individually uh, you know remain in them, but Planet Hollywood will quickly be allowed to put a replacement in there. They're desi- they're already set up for clubs, so it's not like they're going to have to you know take a year to redo the thing and get it ready for some, you know, new company. So it's not like they're not going to be allowed to serve liquor in there forever. They're just going to have to come and prove to the county that they've uh, got control of the place and and they'll be selling, you know, so it'll be a nightclub and a lounge again. I mentioned um, we had a little break before and I mentioned that um, that is a, uh, that is certainly a uh, star-crossed venue. Um, it opened as London Club, the high-end casino for Aladdin, um, which was uh, a very quick failure. And then, you know, because it's off the casino floor, it's it's and then and then uh, then it was um, the Curve nightclub. Another, um, it, it certainly didn't reach the uh, height of the nightclub scene. And now uh, it's the first example of spectacular uh, and penalized excess. In the new era of clubs, so yeah, it's tough. Yeah. Well, it's you know it's an interesting story. We'll definitely uh, continue to watch it and uh, see if there's any other fallout regarding regulations. Um, moving on, uh, there's maybe potentially two other things. And I, you know, we we saw most of the major operators report their financials. Uh, over the last couple of weeks. I mean, honestly, I don't know how interesting this story is uh, just because I don't think there was anything all that unexpected. Um, you know, the scene is hurting. I think we know this. Some did better than others, but uh, I think, you know, many are kind of looking to the horizon. Las Vegas Sands is looking to Singapore. MGM is looking to City Center. Um, you know, Wind Resorts actually uh, made money, which was great. Um, a lot of their competitors didn't. So, you know, I, I don't know, unless someone wants to interject, I don't really know how, I don't really see much value in dissecting the individual operators and their, their the quarter. No, people are really fascinated by this, you know, and I did uh, a TV thing, one of the news shows here about it. But I think it just comes down to that, yeah, nobody's making as much money as they did last year. Everybody's trying to make more money, and everybody hopes that they can make more money next quarter. I think that's pretty much what, what it comes down to. There's yeah, not much no, I, room for a philosophical discussion or anything. I agree. Okay. Well, one company that did have some other other sort of financial-related news was Station, which filed for Chapter 11. Now, on one of our, our previous shows, I think I prematurely uh, – they were in bankruptcy. Um, well, they are now, so I guess it's, it's sort of re- retroactively true. Um, <laughs> the most interesting story I saw related to their bankruptcy was the story about – and um, and how now culinary mate tries to make inroads at station um, now that they are sort of in a weakened position. And, you know, I don't 
follow station as closely as I follow some of the other uh, operators. And, but my, so what I'm getting is that they are very anti-union and have sort of had that position for quite a while. Is that correct? It is correct. What you'll see, and, and we have a little, uh, you know, history here, the, uh, the culinary, um, you know, they, they have certain um, operators that um, they've fought in, for a long time. And then other operators that aren't union that the culinary sort of has a truce with, Boyd Gaming being one of them, um, it's uh, close properties are not unionized. It has a couple unionized properties downtown. The Stardust used to be, but, you know, you know, Sam's Town and the, uh, the old coast properties are not. Yet there's no antipathy between the culinary and Boyd. Station, the uh, Venetian and Palazzo, um, that's a different story. Um, and I think what you'll see is is that station sort of piling on. I mean, the culinary will sort of pile on here, while station is trying to fend off certain of its creditors that don't want to make that don't want to follow station's uh, preferred bankruptcy exit strategy. Um, and they're going to try and stand, you know, stick out for some, some, more, you know, more money. Whether it's whether by forcing Station to give up control of its of the company, or by selling casinos, or whatever. But whatever it is that Station executives want, you can be sure that the culinary will be trying to prevent that. Um, and they have uh, really intelligent research folks, and uh, they are just uh, exceptionally savvy. And so you can be sure that the culinary will be doing everything they can to uh, sort of gum up the works for what Station wants to do. Um, so when you make an enemy of the culinary, you know they are going to they are they are not. If you could pick your enemies, you wouldn't pick the culinary. And uh, this is a time, you know, station typically when they're strong, um, you know, they were an able adversary. But um, right now, the, the the advantage may swing to the culinary. We'll see uh, if they're, you know, we shouldn't think, oh, culinary is going to now unionize the station properties. That's not what's going to happen. They're going to, you know, culinary is not going to, you know, do that right now. It's not to say they might not, you know, pick at a property or something. But what they will do is use everything that they can to try and frustrate whatever it is station wants to do. Yeah, well, it is an interesting, it's interesting to see uh, how that how that may end up. I mean, the example, the article I'm talking about was in the Sun, uh, and the example was, you know, their counterexample was the Aladdin and how that situation shook out. And uh, you know, as who knows what we'll end up seeing. But if Station takes fire from the culinary on one side and Boyd Gaming on the other side, and you know, Bank XYZ on the other side, I mean, they're going to have. Uh, they're going to be pretty distracted, so I can definitely see how this strategy might help them. Well, the last last little tidbit is um, just a little blip, and it may not even be worthy of discussion, but it was something that uh, was uh, I saw pop up, and I think something we mentioned in a in a previous show, which is why I'm bringing it up, and it's that that MG Mirage is now willing to negotiate lower prices for city center condo buyers. Uh, there were a lot of condo buyers that were pretty upset about the, you know, the, the delta of time between when they signed their original contract and now. Uh, values obviously have gone through the floor, and uh, there's all kinds of issues related to that, financing and everything. And for a long time, the company had sort of hadn't really uh, given a clear indication of which way they were going to go, but now now they have, and 
it sounds like they're going to be working with these people. Uh, you know, maybe maybe not a surprise. Sort of, I think maybe they were forced into it, and that's uh, just the way things are. But it was interesting to finally see that uh, pop up. Uh, you know, Hunter, the thing that's funny is, I mean, they probably didn't. They they had the law on their side, I would say, but you know, public opinion and certainly, um, you know buyer opinion, the goodwill with its customers is another matter. And and when when you think about who who did these deals, who were the first people in buying with MGM Mirage? Well they were friends of the company. A lot of high level executives and mid level executives in MGM Mirage bought properties, a lot of their best players. These people thought they were going to be buying units for five hundred thousand, eight hundred thousand, a million, one and a half million dollars, and that they'd be worth double that in in a few years. They thought they were getting in while the getting was good. Um, all of a sudden they find that, you know, the resale value of their properties is twenty, thirty, forty percent less than they had a deal to buy it for. So they're in a position where they either follow through and buy a property that's worth significantly less than they're paying for it or forfeiting their their 10% upfront deposit. Um, and MGM, you know, that looks bad even though it's a deal. I mean, it's a legal, it's legal to do that. Certainly if the properties had gone up in value, MGM couldn't artificially raise prices uh, after the fact when they had deals. But um, in this case, you know, MGM's biting the bullet, taking less money, and maintaining good relationships with some of these people. Um, it'll be, you know, some of them aren't going to be able to follow through and close anyway because credit's just so tight, and banks probably are going to be less willing to um, fund the deals even at the lowered rates. So um, it's a, it's a, it's a good PR move by MGM Mirage. Um, but you know, I'm not sure what it means. You know, for uh, how many how many closures they're going to get. Does and now maybe maybe you know this, Jeff. Does MTM have the option of self financing these buyers into these units until they could get a real bank? Well, certainly because they own it. So definitely they do. Yeah, they can definitely do that. Um, uh, you know, and maybe for some of those folks they will. But um, you know, that's the thing is by by the way MGM Mirage has come out of this. Um, you know, they end up owning all these long-term assets, these condos that you know they're going to have. They're going to come up with a strategy to sell. My, I sort of think what they're going to do is they're going to focus people at Mandarin Oriental um, first, and then Veer second. Um, and then hold off on Vidara, treat Vidara like it's a hotel um, until they get the other units sold. Now maybe I'm wrong. I'm just uh, I'm just hypothesizing here, but um, they do have the ability to do that. And you know, for MGM, they're just going to be, you know, getting their money uh, half million here, a, ha a million there. Um, that's not a bad position to be in. It's not as nice as selling out in a month or two, but you know, they have these assets that they can sell over the long term. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, you know, who knows, five years from now, City Center may be a fully thing, harm and stunted, bustling center of commerce. We'll do so. <laughs> uh, definitely, though, it's getting more exciting as we get closer to the, the December openings, which now the company has announced that they've basically harmonized all of the openings versus spreading them over a couple months. I think originally Bazaar was going to open in October. Uh, that's been pushed to December, other than the Harmon, which obviously isn't going to open uh, until sometime in 2010. Um, over the course of the month of December, we're going to see you know, 
crystals, and then uh, Mandarin and Sadara, and then Aria opens, which will be uh, pretty exciting. So I know all of our listeners are looking forward to that, and I, I think I can for everyone saying that we are too. So uh, it should be very uh, interesting to see what MG Mirage is. It's a huge project. All right, I think we're going to call it a day. Um, I'm going to have fun fixing the massive glitch of dropouts in the middle. Um, but uh, you know, I think uh, if you guys, as long as you guys said something interesting, we'll uh, it will make it all work. But um, I want to thank everybody for being here, uh, for in the table, and let people uh, say where they can track you down. So, uh, Mr. I'm going to start with you. Where can they find you? In businesslasvegas.com. Uh, Mr. Yes, Monster, how about you? VegasTripping.com. Never heard of it. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, Mr. Dr. Ooh, I did it again. Dr. Dave Schwartz. I'm at gaming.unlv.edu and diascast.com. And as a reminder that if you were falling into the category of a senior executive director level above, please be sure to contact Dr. Dave to participate in his um, analysis because it sounds like a pretty great project. Uh, you can find me at ratevegas.com. I am still waiting uh, for Apple to approve the version uh, of my iPhone app, Vegas Mate. It's a pretty significant upgrade that I worked on for months. Now I am being held hostage by the fruit company, uh, but hopefully it will be available soon. I'm uh, very much looking forward to getting it into people's hands. And with that, I want to say have a great weekend and thanks for being here.